turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. It's Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Got questions concerning elder or state law? Attorney Mike Connors has the answer. He's been recognized as one of New York's top lawyers by New York Magazine and brings nearly 40 years of experience to the table. His office number is 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Here's Mike Connors. We are gathered here on hallowed ground. Welcome to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors, presently accompanied by my wife, Beth. Hello, everybody. And my son, Michael. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us. Okay. Now, ordinarily, the show, the first part of the show is about estate planning and elder law. And the idea behind estate planning is to pass assets from one generation to the next, paying the least amount of taxes we need to pay legally, avoiding going through court. That's avoid going through probate, which right now the court system is slow because of COVID and other reasons. And as far as elder law is concerned, we're trying to save assets from nursing home bills. Today, because we're, you know, I know St. Patrick's Day was a couple of days ago, depending on when you're listening to us, maybe a week ago. But today we're going to spend a little bit about the, the Fighting 69th, the Irish Brigade, the Irish Regiment, the 69th, which was part of the Irish Brigade in the Civil War. Um, so, But if you have any questions about estate planning and elder law, you can email us. Michael, what's our email address? That's going to be askmikeconnors at gmail.com. That's askmikeconnors at gmail.com. Right, and we should be saying this more because if you have any questions about estate planning elder law, you know, we, we used to do this show. Um, we used to take live phone calls or whatever back a few years ago. But a couple of things changed. One was COVID, and two, now our show was on about five, six times a week. So... You know, we're taking email questions, but please, if you have any questions, email, give, give us an email. You know, we'll, we'll answer every question, whether uh, somebody from our office gives you a call later or we answer it on the show or perhaps both in some cases. And so email those questions. Michael, again, please give us the email. That's askmikeconnors at gmail.com. Connors spelled C-O-N-N-O-R-S. All right. Now, if you come to our, uh, our Brooklyn office in the front display on our Fifth Avenue entrance, there is a diorama of the Irish Brigade at Antietam, which Antietam was a you know one of the pivotal battles of, of the Civil War, and the Irish Brigade had a big part in that. And of course, a lot of those guys were killed, you know, 
giving freedom to our to our country. But you can see that diorama. It's it's we we start with the 69th Regiment in front and the 88th New York behind, which was also an Irish regiment. And we we got two guys today who are part of the 69th. The 69th, uh, it's it's not the same. You know, it was the 69th Regiment back there which joined the Irish Brigade, and the Irish Brigade back in the Civil War were soldiers. Ninety some odd percent of them were born in Ireland. There were some Irish Americans in it. And that they had taken an oath to defend the United States and Ireland if in time of war to go defend Ireland against the British. So it was a, a very interesting group. And their idea was they were going to learn how to be soldiers in the United States and then eventually, you know, go to England, which they never did. Although some of them did end up in Canada a few years later. Um, and that, that, that we should probably talk about again with the Irish invasion of Canada in 1867 which there was the Battle of Ridgeway, which was the only battle that the Irish won against their crown in over 150 years, from 1798 to 1918. So we're going to have on Steve Ryan and Sergeant Hosa. I don't know, what's Sergeant Hosa's first name, Michael? Paul. Paul Hosa. They're going to be talking about their involvement with the Irish Brigade. Well, I should say the Irish Regiment. Again, it was one of the regiments in the Irish Brigade. It still continued as part of the New York State Militia National Guard over the years. So, happy belated St. Patrick's Day, and we'll see you next week. We're remembering the Irish. Thanks so much for being here with us. If you're a homeowner age 62 or older and are finding it hard to pay off debt, or how about enjoying your retirement years with less stress, a government-insured reverse mortgage may be the answer or might be the perfect solution for you and your family. Hi, this is Frank Melia, a certified mortgage planner. I've been a mortgage specialist for over 20 years, and I've helped countless homeowners all over the tri-state area tap into a little or a lot of their home equity so they can use it right now. This past October, the federal government made changes to the reverse mortgage loan program. Give me a call now so our office can show you how these changes affect how much money you receive and how the annual mortgage insurance costs have decreased. My job is to help you find the best solutions for your retirement goals. I do this by educating homeowners with straightforward information and answers. It's free to call and speak with me, Frank Melia, to determine if this FHA program might be able to help you and your loved ones now. Call and speak with me right now. I'll answer your questions and help you decide if a reverse mortgage is right for you and your family. Make the call now, 888-943-2646, or try me on the internet at www.quanticbank.com backslash fmelia. Once again, call 888-943-2646, and you could be on your way to a stress-free retirement. Frank Melia, NMLS number 62591. All loans provided by Quantic Bank, NMLS number 403503. Do you have somewhere to sleep? Did you eat today? Are you making ends meet? For thousands of New Yorkers, the answer is no. For children and youth, adults, seniors, people struggling with addiction or mental illness, and for the isolated, Catholic Charities of Brooklyn and Queens is there. With 160 programs and more than 4,500 units of affordable housing, Catholic Charities is one of the largest multi-service charitable organizations in the nation. We help change lives and build communities. If you or someone you know needs assistance, call 718-722-6001 or visit CCB. Time now for Connor's Corner, where Mike takes a closer look at topics like history, politics, religion, and more. Here's Mike. Welcome to the Connor's Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. 
you know, we just had St. Patrick's Day this past week, and, you know, I thought we'd talk a little bit about the Fighting 69th, and we have Colonel Steve Ryan here to talk about it. Welcome to the show again. Thank you, Mike. I know you've been on a few times. We talked about Afghanistan and and whatever. Sure. But the 69th, there's an armory, what, on 23rd 23rd in Lex. Yeah. Can you tell the audience a little bit about it? What does it commemorate? So the armory was uh, uh, started construction in 1903. Um, The 69th has uh, been there through the early 20th century. They are still there today. Um, It's uh, the regimental headquarters. The, right now, the 69th is the 1st Battalion 69th. Uh, when we still had a regimental system, much like the Marine Corps does, uh, it was a full-size regiment, meaning it was led by a colonel with two battalions. Now it's a led by a lieutenant colonel in command, but it still has the lineage of the 69th. Um, before that, the unit was in lower Manhattan, uh, when the 69th started, they didn't even really have an armory. They used to meet in Hibernian Hall. The unit was formally recognized by the state on October the 12th, 1851. But the unit actually started to form in late 1849, and it was the 2nd Irish Regiment. That's what they kind of named themselves. And a lot of the Irish immigrants who came over from Ireland were specifically joining the U.S. military at that time. Uh, locally, obviously, would be like the National Guard today the militia they used to call it, um, to learn how to be soldiers because it was always this idea, that whether it was a dream or a, or a, an aspiration to go back and free Ireland from British control. Um, they tried that out with the Fenians, but that's for another day. Yeah, uh, we've, we've talked about that a few times. Right. Do you know, uh, the Prince of, in the Army right now, and some of the people may know, but the Prince of Wales flag is there. Can you explain a little bit about the Prince of Wales or what happened in 1860 so the flag 61. the flag was uh made by tiffany company and um i believe it's the second one if i'm not mistaken that is actually in the irish dell the parliament and it was given as a gift by president john f kennedy when he visited ireland in 1962 but the prince of wales flag the way they got their name the prince of wales flag was because colonel cochran was the commander of the 69th at the time back then officers were elected much like fire departments out on long island um cochran came into the unit in 1848 49 when uh, he, he enlisted almost as soon as he got here and uh, he worked his way up to colonel and um he was in command of the unit. The Prince of Wales, future King of England, uh, future Edward Seventh, at that, but we didn't know that at that time, came to visit Canada and the United States, and there was a sort of a North American tour, and all the regiments in New York were expected to turn out one day to welcome his arrival in New York City. You had the the storied Seventh Regiment, you had the Ninth Regiment. All the famous units that had lineage back to the American Revolution and the War of 1812, uh, the 69th refused. And let's face it, um, 97% of his troops were Irish and Irish-born, not just Irish-American, but Irish-born. And they went through and suffered under the potato famine, and there was no way in hell they were going to turn out. So he was charged with insubordination, refusing a lawful order, and he was uh, prepared for court-martial. as he was waiting for the final court-martial, lo and behold, Fort Sumter gets fired upon and all is forgiven <laughs> because now we need the troops. 
So uh, that got completely thrown out the window. But in honor of him standing up for that, they named the first color presented to the unit as the Prince of Wales flag. Yeah. And Corcoran had, you know, a pretty colorful history after that. He was captured at Bull Run, and he was he was going to give him parole, but he wouldn't accept it because a rebel government didn't have the authority to give parole in his mind. Not only that, they were talking about executing him because there was no plan once this war started how they would do exchange of prisoners. So typically in the course of the war, and you know this, Mike, if they paroled a prisoner, they were promised never to return to the battlefield. Um, some of them might serve in uniform, but in the rear. Um, you know, but, like, like but he, he refused made... to accept that parole. Right. So he wound up getting exchanged with... Uh, I believe his name was Collins, the colonel. Uh, he was from Kentucky, um, and it was worked out in an exchange. And and Cochran came back as sort of a national hero. Um, he met with Lincoln. Lincoln used him as a confidant, confidant, um, because of you know the the whole the Irish were a huge voting block. Let's face it, especially in New York. Um, and he subsequently was made a brigadier general in the USV, United States Volunteers, which today would be like the reserves. And uh, he went back to form the Irish Legion. And there were actually two 69ths in the war, and I can go into that in depth if you want me to. Yeah, go ahead. Let's. So what happened the Irish was Legion. Uh, up to Bull Run, you have the 69th NYSM. You'll see on the, a lot of the monuments, New York State Militia. So the, all the units were called out in 90 days, right? Just like Iraq was going to be over and we'd be home for Christmas. You know, they lied to us then and they lied to our guys back then too. So what's changed? Nothing. So um, once they came back after those 90 days, after Bull Run, um, the unit basically kind of had a split. So the 69th New York State Militia remained in New York, just like a National Guard unit. And those that wanted to continue to serve and fight they formed the 69th New York State Volunteers. So that's how they subsequently uh, differentiated that. So now you have two units. Now we're going to have three because now Cochran's out of out of uh, the Confederate prison. He forms the Irish Legion, and he forms a 69th, which was going to be artillery. Uh, and that was going to be on the, the uh, Cochran's you know, Irish Legion. And uh, subsequently, unfortunately, Cochran uh, fell from a horse in Fairfax, Virginia, and uh, subsequently died, so that never went about, went that right way. The 69th uh, unit that was formed under him, they changed their number. I believe it was the 187th, and the reason they had to do that was because soldiers weren't getting their pay. All their pay was going to the other 69th, so they had to come up with a, another number for the unit. That is not uh, without precedent. I'll give you an example. The 14th Brooklyn, the Red, Red Legs, the only unit named after a city. But it really were the 14th New York, but they used to call them the 14th Brooklyn. In the war, they were the 84th USV, United States Volunteers, because subsequently, again, militia units would keep X amount of soldiers back in the states, which was required by state's constitution. There was no state guard back then. There was no differentiation between the National Guard and the state guard like we have today. Um, so the 69th uh, New York State Volunteers fought throughout the war and then you have another unit the famous ninth regiment but then hawkins zouaves was formed and they called themselves the ninth new york and the veterans of the ninth got very upset about that so now the federal government had to make them the 83rd new york state volunteers again to differentiate between the two so sometimes you had units running around with the same number the numbers were typically assigned by the state 
Um, in the early days, it used to be based on what assembly district you were in. So if you were like, uh, let's say, in the 78th ED, I believe, in Diker Heights, am I getting mm-hmm. that right? That unit, had it been back at that time in the early 19th century, the, the young men put into a unit would most likely be called the 78th Regiment. They fell away from that up until the part of the time in the Mexican War because so many units became defunct, bellied up, were mothballed, had their uh, colors cased back and forth. It happened to the 9th Regiment many times. As a matter of fact, the 9th Company A at least helped form the nucleus of what became the 69th Regiment. Yeah, and, and you know, for those of you out there, this if you know, I just somebody just took a tour today, but we do have the 69th Regiment at Antietam in our front window with a display, and the 14th Brooklyn. You have to go up to the second floor, and that's in my office where we have military miniatures on display. And uh, like I said, some people just had a tour and thanked us with these masks here in honor of St. Patrick's Day. What? Proper green color, yes. Yeah. Now, I mean, we did have we we've had you know we never had a show on Corcoran. We have had shows on Thomas Mar, Francis Marr sure. and of course Tom Sweeney, right? The immortal Ed Bars did. Yeah, the best story is when he had the fight and he only had one arm because yes, he lost the first one, and the other generals. one in the Mexican War. Yeah, right? but I mean, Ed Bars, you, you know, I, I, we talked to Ed Bars because one time we were driving him to the railroad station and we were passing Greenwood Cemetery. And I told him that Tom Sweeney was buried there, and then he started going on Tom Sweeney stories, which lasted an hour. I'm sure. <laughs> Almost late I'm for sure. his train. I'm sure. These people were a lot larger than life characters. Yeah, I right. Mean, you know. And, of course, Ed Bars used, used, lost the use of his arm. In so the South we, Pacific in World yeah, War II, right? Yeah, so mm-hmm. he had some, mm-hmm. you know, I guess sympathy for him. And he says, you know, the guy learned how to maneuver <laughs> with only one arm. But the uh, the 69th has had a close association with the St. Patrick's Day Parade. As most people know, they lead the parade. Uh, of course, they also have the advertisers up there first now, but typically the 69th leads the parade, and that's typically where the governor sets off, uh, steps off. And um, that goes back to really when the unit was founded, and that was to protect them because there was this whole political dynamic in the city between the Orange Order of uh, hardline Protestants who are anti-Irish Catholic, anti-Roman Catholic, and of course the Irish. Uh, it was so the 69th really did serve a security purpose was to protect the marchers, particularly the Hibernians and the other marchers in the parade, and they've done, been doing that continuously throughout their history, even in wartime. So when the 69th was off as the 165th Infantry fighting in France in World War One and fighting under the 27th Division, uh, 165th, in the Second World War, the 69th New York Guard, the State Guard, filled that role. So there was always a 69th leading the parade, even through the wars. Um, and it was always a small contingent left behind, even in, during the Iraq campaign, of soldiers, you know, for one other reason or another, uh, could not deploy. They still had a nucleus of the unit, along with their Veterans Corps, would still lead, still led the parade throughout the time period. Now, what's been the military role of of the Fighting 69th after the Civil War? So the 69th, uh, when the soldiers came home, the 69th New York State V, along with the rest of the Irish Brigade, the 88th and the 63rd, uh, were basically uh, uh, disbanded. What they in the army, like a battleship in the navy, they they basically mothball it, right? In the army, we call it casing the colors. So those colors were cased, sent to Albany. 
They were kept in the old legislative building for years and years. Um, some of them are ter- periodically put on display in the armory for many years, and a lot of them have been brought up to Syracuse because they can be, be, be preserved properly there at the State Military Museum. The um, I'm sorry, you were asking me about the... The, the role in the military after the Civil War. Oh, sure. The fighting I'm sorry. Yeah, the 69th basically returned to being what would be a National Guard unit today. Now, in 1863, they stopped calling it militia. They actually started, it was acting an act pushed through Congress. It was one of the many reforms that came up, um, and they called it now, it was the 69th New York National Guard. So that's when we actually start calling it the National Guard. Now, Lafayette gave that uh, moniker to the 7th Regiment when he came back to visit New York as an older man. And he called them the National Guard. And uh, that was the seventh nickname. And then now all the units had that designation officially, the National Guard. They basically uh, drilled uh, typically the National Guard. They would meet several nights a week in the month, uh, do it. All the units did an encampment in the summer, much like the National Guard does annual training, only it's not restricted to the summer anymore. They'll re- they'll do their annual training year-round, depending on what's going on. They may be in Australia in the wintertime. Uh, they may be in Africa somewhere. Um, so it really doesn't matter. But back then, they used to all camp, bivouac out on Long Island, uh, up in Westchester County, sometimes even the Bronx, uh, pitch tents, and basically just do uh, training, drill and ceremony, whatever was required uh, the officers keeping up on their educations, and that went on and on all the way through World War One without much changes. Now they were called out next for the Spanish-American War, and again they retook that designation, 69th New York State Volunteers. Again, you know, to differentiate against just the National Guard troops that may not have gone off. They wound up in Puerto Rico. They weren't in San Juan Hill, so it wasn't that exciting for them that time. But then again, World War One. Uh, They were made famous. They made a movie about them, obviously, the Fighting 69th, and they were under the 42nd Division, which was formed in Camp Mills, which is in Garden City, New York, and there's still a monument there today where the camp stood. Uh, MacArthur picked the rainbow. The reason they wear that patch was that the rainbow across America, and they were taking what they considered the best units, the cream of the American Army National Guard. Uh, from all across the country. And he did it very in a very clever fashion, MacArthur. He was the chief of staff of the division at the time. He later wound up commanding the division before the end of the First World War. He wanted to put in the brigades regiments who had fought each other in the Civil War. Uh, the 14th Alabama is a good example, and the 69th New York were actually brigaded together. It was a sort of a way to heal the nation. They started to see some of that in the Spanish-American War, but the war was over very quickly, as everyone recalled. It was really a short duration. There was still some animosity, you know, passed on through generations, um, and it was a way of bringing the country together, and I think it really worked really, really well because these men held u- reunions uh, when they came back to the United States. Um, after World War One, again, the 69th uh, went back to being, you know, a National Guard unit like it is today. And then subsequently was called up in 1940 for when the peacetime draft was enacted. The National Guard got called up. They basically were calling them up for a year to get them ready in case we wound up going to war. But I think we kind of knew the way we were headed. Um, That 1940 call-up actually helped us tremendously once we really got into the war after Pearl Harbor. 
Um, after World War II, the unit comes home from occupation duty in 47. The New York State Guard that replaced the 69th as the 69th New York Guard uh, was dissolved. Uh, but then the New York Guard comes back during the Korean War and, and was kept permanent after that because they said, look, we keep doing away with the State Guard and then we have to keep bringing it back. So they kept that as a backup. Uh, the 69th um, did not go to the Korean War because a lot of the East Coast National Guard units were felt it would be easy to mob them to Europe should the Soviet Union, should this war get any bigger. And their plan was to go fight in Europe. So that's why they didn't wind up going to uh, Korea and, of course, didn't wind up going to Vietnam. Now, West Coast units like the 40th Division in California, they wound up going to the Korean War again, because, or the 45th from Oklahoma. It was easier to take units west of the Mississippi and mobilize them to Korea uh, during that conflict. Let me, what, what's the role of 69? What is the armory on 23rd Street? What is, so what, the, what's the purpose of it? Sure, the 69th Armory, uh, when it was a full regiment, housed several companies. Right now, uh, they have their headquarters company, the battalion headquarters itself, um, the regimental headquarters, which is the historical portion of it. We have the Veterans Corps there. We also have Company A and the headquarters company. We used to have Company E when they had one there, but that is the hub where a lot of equipment is kept there, maintained, arms room, um, night vision, sensitive items, some vehicles. The other companies in the 69th are spread throughout Long Island, and one is up in Camp Smith in Peekskill, New York. All right, now, you know, is there any chance those guys, let's say, let's say there was a war in Europe right now, would they be called up and Oh, absolutely, they would. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's not your grandfather's National Guard. This whole one-army concept has changed uh, tremendously, really starting in the in the late 80s, early 90s, um, where we no longer had, had the draft. When the draft was done away with, um, there's much more heavily reliance on the Guard and Reserves, and you saw that in Iraq and Afghanistan. So a lot of these troops are, uh, are uh, well-seasoned, veterans and certainly would be called up and it'd be a lot easier to get them ready to go because they've been so used to it and they've been involved in many training exercises the 69 as i mentioned was in australia a couple of years ago um they're getting to send elements over to uh, africa to help with the security assistance forces over there in east africa so they're constantly they're going to ntc they're doing what regular army units do and they have a tougher job because they not only have to meet their military education requirements and training requirements at the same time, like their component brothers and sisters in the reserves, they have to uh, hold down a full-time job at the same time. So the, it's it's quite a balancing act, and it, it is a challenge. Well, let me ask you something. We, we talked, I think last time you were on the show, we talked about Afghanistan because you served a bit of time in Afghanistan. Do you have any comments? I mean, yeah, you're not an expert in it, but do you have any comments about what's going on in, in Europe right now in Ukraine, Russia, Moldova? Well, um, President Trump, whether you love him or hate him, uh, when he called out NATO and said it's time to ante up, um, you know, we're giving in 4% of our GDP and other countries are doing maybe one or not even that. Um he called him out on it. And then, of course, the establishment wasn't happy about that. How dare he do that and upset our allies? Well, 
what do you see now? I mean, right now, we can't even get our allies to agree on banning the export, uh, the import of uh, natural gas from Russia, um, which makes me kind of doubt would we really even be uh, willing to, uh, is NATO really going to do what it must do if it has to, if Putin were to decide to go into the other Baltic states or other NATO countries or Poland, for example? I mean, it's going to make one scratch your head. Um, I think we are part to blame on this. Uh, we didn't honor our agreement saying that we would protect Ukraine despite the fact that they are not in NATO when we convinced them to give up their nuclear weapons to Russia. And that happened under uh, uh, George Herbert Walker Bush and then uh, with uh, Secretary Baker's help at the time. And then it was carried out when President Clinton was in the White House. So there's plenty of blame on both sides of the aisle. Uh, nevertheless, we told Ukraine, who wanted to come into NATO, well, you need to clean up your corruption. Well, it seems that certain um, political families, shall we say, took advantage of that corruption, uh, to name a few, uh, that I don't really need to name, but I think everyone knows. Yeah. So as long as that was allowed to uh, be, they were using Ukraine as a cash cow, um, at the same time telling them, well, no, 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 you can't come in because you need to clean up your act. So we're partly to blame for this. But that debacle. treaty back in the in the first Bush administration, nobody ever mentions that now. They don't I, want to I mention it. it. You know, you know, they don't want, you know, the problem, I'm sorry, with a lot of Americans is we have very short memories. Um, I think uh, we should honor Article 5, however. I think we can help... Uh, the Ukrainians, as the president has been doing, and started giving them the javelins. And but the way they're playing around with, well, who's going to move the jets from Poland to Germany to Ukraine? I mean, it seems like we can't get our act together. And uh, I think Putin's taking notice of this uh, and seeing how we're reacting. And he's probably scratching his head. Well, I don't know. These guys are going to. If I had to, I mean, would that embolden him? I don't know. Yeah. Well, what about the performance of the Russian army up to date? I think where the Russians go, they fight in a sort of a three-tier system. They have their um, third echelon troops, their second echelon, and they usually say they're best for last. Um, and I think you're starting to see that now. I think where the Russians might have made a mistake is they used four um, accesses of advance. As everyone can remember in During Desert Storm, we kind of used one, kind of two. We did that frontal up the straight up into Kuwait. And then we did a hook around on the left-hand side, sort of a left hook like a boxer. We feinted a, an amphibious invasion, which kind of threw him off, which was more of a decept deceiving campaign. Um, the Russians took on four axes of advances, and I think it uh, that would be a challenge even for the United States. And I don't think they had the logistic change to do that. An army moves on its stomach. As we started to see, the Russians were going into small supermarkets and taking food when they opened their rations i heard some of them expired in 2015 their version of our mres um, i've heard acts of sabotaging their own vehicles they're using conscripts some of the parents aren't happy there's been protests in russia but i don't think we've seen the best of what the russian army can provide and i think we should never underestimate them i think they've had their problems let's face it russia really hasn't been in a war since afghanistan and uh, this is new to them. But I think China is definitely taking notes on this. Well, yeah, we can. We really can't get into that too much because it's just too complex and 
what's to say? You know, it's hard to, to figure out what the Chinese are thinking because, you know, if you're completely oblivious to world opinion, you know, why do you, does China want to be the next Russia and be completely ostracized if they invade Taiwan? Right. But who's going to say? I think China, I in my opinion, was definitely looking at Taiwan, probably an attack in the spring or the uh, or the summer. But they may take a step back now after seeing how world opinion is turning. I mean, uh, cell phones, instant communication, the world has changed. It's not like despots can just do what they feel like anymore. And they don't want to be, do they really want to become a pariah? I mean, their economy is solely based on what they you know, export around the world. And if we were to suddenly cut them off, the U.S., Europe, and the rest of the world, um, they would seriously have a problem with that. So it may give them pause. I don't know who can say. Yeah, let's hope so. But and pray for the Ukraine. Uh, on a personal note, our we we mentioned this before, but our uh, retired employee Galina escaped from the Ukraine. She's in Germany right now, and she'll be back in the United States um, on March 18th. So, you know, if it all goes well, she's here. Mm-hmm. Beth, do you have any comments or? I don't know. Um, I know you know a lot more than you're saying, and that's okay. I'm retired, but yes, I still have to behave myself. (laughs) And that's no fun, but that's okay. Um, I know a lot of the people are saying World War III, World War III. Do you have any comments about that? I... uh... No, I I'm, I still sleep at night. I don't foresee that. I don't think the Putin or his oligarchs or his generals want that. Um, but they're going to try to push us as far as they can to get what they want. I mean, now he just said today that his peace talks are going well. I don't know what that looks like. It may turn out where he keeps some of the territory he has taken, uh, especially the, in the east in the Russian-speaking portions of the of the country. Um, Zelensky may be able to hold on to his country, or at least part of it. It may wind up like in Ireland, you know, in Northern Ireland and Ireland. Um, and, uh, but I don't know. People are talking about charging him with war crimes. So I don't know how far this goes. Uh, it's, it's anyone's guess. I really don't know, but I do not feel it's going to go nuclear. And certainly the administration is trying to do the best they can that it's not, even though it irks some people back home here. Certainly the Ukrainians and some of the pundits, you know, who are calling for a uh, no-fly zone. I mean, the issue with the no-fly zone is what do you do? What happens when we shoot down one of their planes or they shoot down one of ours? Uh, we're at war. So, I mean, are we really willing to risk uh, global nuclear war? This is not going into Syria or Iraq. We're dealing with a world power with nuclear weapons so i think we have to be very careful how we take our next step i'm not saying we cannot stand up to them in my opinion i think we need to start producing our own energy again and this proves the point why we need to be energy independent and not be solely uh at the mercy of uh, despots or very unstable parts of the world Um, I think by having our own energy, flooding the market, reducing the ruble and the Russian price of oil degrades his ability to wage war, to pay and feed his soldiers. And I think we could do that in an economic way and not a military way and still be able to achieve some sort of measure of success and victory.
and putting an end to this. You know, I heard Mitt Romney speak, and he reminded me of U.S. Grant in one way, which is I'm not one of Mitt Romney's greatest admirers, but he was saying we're constantly afraid about what the Russians are going to do. Why aren't we trying to get the Russians scared of what we might do? Well, we that have, that's U.S. Grant. What are we worried about what Robert E. Lee is going to do with us? Why don't we worry about what we're going to do to Robert E. Lee? Well, because certainly I, the reason it is because we've tied our hands in two ways. One, the lack of the energy production and being able to combat. Because what does Russia have? They have lumber. They have some diamonds. They have caviar <laughs> you know, and the natural gas. We have a lot more to, to offer the world. Um, we would. Russia's GDP is about the size of Texas. Um we, we could certainly beat them in the economic. I mean, that's how Ronald Reagan brought them down. I think they should take a page out of Ronald Reagan and how he approached it. I mean, we, we basically outspent them and bankrupted them. Um, so I think we could certainly take that as a non-kinetic approach to the, to the problem. I have one more thing because this just bothers me so much. I just think the people that are in charge of our country right now don't like our country. And I am very upset about it because you're saying you like Venezuela and Iran better than you like Texas and and West Virginia. Well, I think the American people um, are going to let themselves be heard in just a few more months. Um because elections have consequences, and uh, this is where why we are where we are. Um, I'm all about um, recognizing the threat from um, climate change, um, but the climate's always been changing. And if it's a global issue, why is it okay for Iran or Venezuela or the Middle East to pump out oil, but not the United States. Is that virtual signaling? Is that because we're so holier than now that we're trying to save the planet, but nobody else is? I thought this was a global issue, they keep saying. But why are we the ones tying our own hands? Especially when China and India are not. But right, they're, they're declared developing countries. I really don't think China's a developing country. I mean, if you look at the size of their military. And listen, no one's ever explained to me, but there used to be glaciers in Central Park. They're, they're not anymore, so obviously we had a lot of global warming. What was the reason for that, and what can we... Well, I remember as a kid in 1974 looking at a National Geographic magazine saying the coming ice age, yeah. and that was during the energy crisis in 74. And I remember a ship flipped over on its side and cables snapped off the Brooklyn Bridge. I, I still have it somewhere, so uh, who's to say? Well, I, ha I have a theory, you know. What if, what if the dinosaurs which were just huge way back when, what if they were like the cows and produced a lot of stuff that made the, the glaciers melt? I don't know where you're coming from this because that was 10,000 years ago. But I think we're running no, out of time no, for no, this no. show. Okay. Yeah. We're running out of time right now. Steve, thank you for being on Connor's Corner. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Beth. How can I protect my family if something happens to me? What if I need to go to a nursing home? What will happen to our savings, our home? What's the best way to give my home to my kids? Who will help us take care of Grandpa? 
These and many other questions can be answered with a phone call to Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC, 718-238-6500. Mike Connors, one of New York Magazine's top lawyers, has over 30 years of estate planning and elder law experience. Mike and his team of professionals will help you protect your assets from probate, taxes, and nursing home costs so you can have peace of mind knowing you and your family will be taken care of and protected. I'm Mike Connors, founder of Connors & Sullivan. People don't plan to fail, they fail to plan. The time to plan is now. I'm Beth Connors. Call today for a free initial consultation with one of our experienced lawyers. Connors and Sullivan in Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan, and Staten Island. Call 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500 or connorsandsullivan.com. We have a new guest here. Please introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Paul Hosa, and uh, I was in the Fighting 69th for... Uh, about six years. Um, it was a great time, and I can't imagine serving in any other regiment. So, Well, we've had the history. We've been talking about the history. Why don't you two fellas tell us more about the the ins and outs of the Fighting 69th today? Sure. Well, I retired from the Army Reserve this month in February, so I had been out of the uh, National Guard since uh, 2003 for when I deployed to Iraq with the active duty army uh fourth fourth division but my my years in the 69 really from 1996 to uh 99 uh in that time I was a platoon leader in Charlie Company I was the acting company commander for a brief call up when we had to go upstate New York for the ice storms we were delivering generators to the farmers because I didn't know this I'm from New York and New York is the number one dairy state in the United States. I mean, I thought it was like Wisconsin. I mean, it certainly looked like it was when we were up there. <laughs> but the National Guard typically has a domestic role. So we do get called up for Hurricane Sandy, sure. uh, the COVID. Uh, we still have troops on active duty rotating in and out. Not the entire unit at one time, obviously, because soldiers have to still maintain their civilian employment. Uh, we also were up in Mechanicsville for a tornado. I thought tornadoes only happened in Oklahoma. <laughs> but... Uh, here we are. Uh, so I had a great time in the 69. We had two major state call-ups, um, and um, I loved being a platoon leader going up in Fort Drum and uh, had a great time. We were mechanized infantry. I think they went back to being light infantry, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and then what happened was I got pinged to go teach uh, officer candidate school. That's when I oh, left the 69th nice. in uh, late 99. So, But I'll let you uh, – I've talked oh, enough. I'm no, no, fantastic. Uh, when I was in the 69th, I was uh, enlisted in uh, Alpha Company. Uh, at the time, I think in the beginning it was air assault and then it tra transitioned into uh, regular light infantry. And I think probably one of my favorite times was when we actually went to Australia to train with the Australians. Yes, I mentioned that, yeah. Yeah, and that was a, that was a great time because I still remember we had been – we were uh, basically we were the opposing force. We were the op four, and we were stuck on this hill for a long time, just waiting for the Australians and the Americans to finally take our position. Uh, and when the moment finally came, and the Australians were slowly making up their way up the hill, uh, our first sergeant said, "Now!" and he raised that emerald banner, and we charged down the hill. And I thought that was the highlight, that moment of charging down the hill, real 69th fighting 69th style. But it gets better. I went to the Remembrance Day at Gettysburg, and I was sitting there at the Gary Owen, you know, having a pint of Guinness like a good 69th uh, sergeant does, and a guy I had never really met before, I believe he had previously served in the 69th, sort of pat me on the back, and he said, oh, you, you were in Alpha Company? I said, yes, sir. He said, 
did you guys really charge in Australia? <laughs> and that made my night. I was so yeah. proud of that. That word got around that we uh, we held the standard, held but the standard high. I'm curious to ask you a question, is that when we were in the 69th, this is how it worked on St. Patrick's Day. The unit had to get there really early in the morning, particularly the guys out on Long Island, because they bust us in. We all met up at the Armory at the, at the in Lexington Avenue. We had a breakfast at like 6 in the morning. And then a police car would drive in front of us, and the entire unit would march up Madison Avenue and then hook right to 5th, right into St. Patrick's Cathedral, and they had the doors open. And, of course, we're way up in the front with all the the governor and the mayor and all the politicians and the senators, and we did the mass, and the cardinal would say the mass. And then we would fall outside, and then our weapons would be out there. We didn't have bolts in them, but just the Mm -hmm. rifles. And then we proceeded to march up 5th Avenue, and we had the Irish wolfhounds leading us what a lot of people don't realize is irish wolfhounds have small hearts so their cardio is not the greatest oh, they're not, I did not know, you know they're, they're mostly big and intimidating to sit mm-hmm. there and guarding the sheep they typically switched them out and I, i'm guessing they still did that but most of the families used to fight over whose dogs were going to be using the parade <laughs> but we let the parade committee decide that we stayed the heck out of that but when we, the parade would end we would work our way down to lexington avenue and they used to stop the subway, tick everybody off, and say this was the last stop, throw everybody off the train. <laughs> so a lot of people were very annoyed. And then the entire battalion would march down the steps and basically take over that subway station. All of us get on one big train uh, and head down, and they ran us express all the way to 28th Street. And then we would get out of that, march out, and go straight right into the armory, which is much the way I think they oh, still do it Oh, that is right, cool. Right, right. A couple things I would just add in there is that we – as far as the uh, wolfhounds are concerned, usually it's the soldier and NCO of the year mm-hmm. that usually gets to walk. Uh, the, uh, hold on wolfhound. to them and walk them down. Right, 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 right. So that's one of the privileges of being the soldier or uh, NCO of the year. We also or drag were, down Fifth Avenue. Yes. Doors are enormous. <laughs> and um, I don't know if you got to talk about the boxwood. No, you can go into that okay, part where I, that came from. So one thing we get to wear in our uniforms, which I believe is absolutely unique to the 69th, you'll never see this in any other unit, is we wear boxwood in our uniforms when we march. And that comes from uh, the 69th at Fredericksburg during the Civil War. And when they had to charge Mary's Heights, I believe they didn't have their colors because the colors were so destroyed from Antietam, I believe. And so the guys picked up boxwood and put it in their forge caps to represent their colors, green. And they charged Mary's Heights. And story goes that even though they did not take the Confederate fortifications there, the stone wall there, the bodies closest to the stone wall did have those boxwood in their caps. Now, you know, we can go into the story and and how that works out. But um, from the tradition in the 69th is that we always wear the boxwood in our uniforms. And from what I understand, for a while there, the boxwood was actually shipped up from Fredericksburg okay. um, to keep that tradition going. Yes. And talking about traditions, one thing is unique about the 69th is any unit in the U.S. Army, um, they have 64 battle rings, um, battle streamers from the Pacific, World War One, and, of course, Iraq. And one company went to Afghanistan. I believe it was Delta Company. Um, the, I'm in the 69th Historical Association also. Uh, although not part of the actual formal regiment, we have a close association with them. I'm also in the Veterans Corps, which is why I'm kind of up and knowing where the 69th is on pretty much every week. Um, the 69th 
historical association with the 69th New York State Volunteers is the Civil War Living Historians Reenactors. So we do the battles, you know, not the real battles, but we go to the battle sites, Gettysburg being a big one, of course, Antietam, Fredericksburg. Right. Um, and the unit sometimes accompanies us or we accompany them uh, too late. Uh, to give honor to the soldiers who fell there, particularly either decorating the graves, which we do every year at Gettysburg in November, and also the the monuments uh, dedicated to the Irish Brigade and the 69th throughout the uh, Maryland and Virginia and Pennsylvania. Now, as a commissioned officer, during the parade, did you get a swagger stick? Uh, we had a, a blackthorn stick. A blackthorn, they call excuse it. me. Right. It looks like the big Irish walking stick that your grandfather used to hit you with when you misbehaved <laughs> like I did. Uh, but it's a shortened version of the stick. It's a black stick. And yes, the officers used to get them. I had my own, and I kept it, and I still have it. A lot of the guys weren't always into it, and they would just hand them out, and then they'd collect them back. And they did that for a reason, because they knew they'd walk and grow legs, and you'd never see them again. So <laughs> the unit did it. They the 69 treated it as a sensitive item, just like your weapon. <laughs> well, I tell you what, I've been to Mary's Heights, and when you when you're actually on the battlefield, you don't realize how heartbreaking it is trying to storm up uh, a rise and people and, behind. And a I think that also wall. gets forgotten. I know they show it in the movie, and I don't like to use movies as an example, but. Uh, the Irish really weren't weeping at their fellow Irishmen. They were more angry because the Irish that went to the south felt mm -hmm. that they were fighting for their independence and they saw themselves much like the Americans in the American right. Revolution. Whereas the Americans said, well, this is a great country that gave us refuge. We should be fighting for the Union. So they saw it in dif from different right. political perspectives. Wow, when do we ever see that today, right? right. Anyway, um, in what often gets forgotten, about 160,000 Irish and Irish-Americans, Irish-born and Irish-Americans, fought in the American Civil War. About 20,000 fought in the Confederacy, uh, mostly because most of the Irish came to mo most of the northern ports, Philadelphia, Boston, New York, and whatnot. You know, very few would land in Savannah or New Orleans. Um, now, one of the most famous Irish regiments, and the only one really specifically Irish, was the 10th Tennessee and they also had Major General Claiborne. Patrick Claiborne is a famous Irish general of the Confederacy. He was a major general. Uh, so the Irish made a huge contribution in that war on both sides. Listen, thank you all so much for coming. And will you come back again on another day? Certainly. Absolutely. absolutely. Thank you for having us. No, thank you. Do you know how many Christians live in the Middle East? Six million people. Do you know how many Christians need your help? Every single one. Do you know what we can do? With St. Francis in Beirut, we can give them hope. We can give them medicines. We can give them medical equipment. We can give them everything they're looking for. Because some others decided to remove Christianity from the Middle East. But if we will help them every single day, not just to feed them or clothing, it's all about giving them another day with the idea that they are recognized, that we love them, they are cousins, sisters, they are roots. So, St. Francis in Beirut, it's all about helping Christians, and you can be part of that help too. If you want to help Father Paul in his mission, send your donations to St. Francis in Beirut, 213 Stanton Street, New York, New York, 10002. I'm in a good place in my life. And I'm energized by new adventures. I've got friends to laugh with. And a good relationship. 
but even though I'm kind of comfortable, I sometimes wonder, is there something more? Could God in church be what you're looking for? Come and see at catholicscomehome.com. Okay, thanks again, Steve. Do you have any last thoughts to share with the audience? Yes, I would. Uh, uh, Lieutenant Robert Connolly, my boss at the Nassau County Police Department Homeland Security Unit, like to give a shout-out to all the other officers there in the unit. Um, they let me uh, do a little bit of a tour change to be able to be here in person this afternoon, so I'd like to thank them. Okay, well, thank you, guys. of Wales came over here and made a hubbub. Oh, everybody turned out, you know, in golden tinsel too. But then the good old 69th didn't like these lords or peers. They wouldn't give a damn for kings, the Irish volunteers. We love the land of liberty, its laws we will revere. But the devil take a nobility, says the Irish volunteer. We love the land of liberty, its laws we will revere. But the devil take a nobility, says the Irish volunteer. The traitors in the south should ever cross our roads We'll drive them to the devil as St. Patrick did the toads We'll give them all short nooses that come just below the ears Made strong and good of Irish hemp by Irish volunteers Then here's to brave McClellan whom the army now reveres He'll lead us on to victory, the Irish volunteers Kevin McCullough, are you or your parents' assets protected from nursing home bills? Did you know these bills can exceed $15,000 a month? People work their entire lives to live comfortably in retirement, but when people become ill and need to go to a nursing home or receive home care, the bills can drain their assets, leaving many people bankrupt. The good news is that you can prevent that from happening if you plan in advance. Connors and Sullivan's lawyers can customize a plan that specifically protects your interests, including your home. Schedule a free comprehensive telephone consultation with Mike Connors to discuss your issues and concerns from the security of your home. Call today, 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. Don't let nursing home bills take your life's savings and leave you and your loved ones bankrupt. Don't wait another minute. Mike Connors can take you through the process by telephone and start a plan designed for you today. That's 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500. The preceding pre-recorded program paid for by Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC.